Welcome everyone to yet another episode of the Fire These Times. Today we'll be joined with uh, Sahar Amarir and uh, Leila Shami. Uh, Leila is going to be co-hosting this episode to talk about a piece that Sahar wrote for the Funambulist called Imperialism is Multiple, So Should Be Our Solidarities on the Need for Post-Post-Colonialism. We're going to start with like untangling this a bit uh, to kind of anchor our conversation and kickstart it. But first, can we start with some basic intros if that's okay? Uh, Sahar and, uh, and then Leila. Tell us who you are, share whatever information you want to share. You don't have to share more than that, of course. And we'll take it from there. Thanks, Joey. Yeah, so my name is uh, Sahar. I'm a French-Moroccan Amazigh. The double hyphenate is important for me. <laughs> I was born and raised in, in Paris from, yeah, Moroccan Amazigh family. Being quite close to my Moroccan side, I've always kept a bit of a foot here and foot there. So I think sort of like reflections on identity, belonging, but also how that intersects with like criticism of structures of powers, et cetera, have sort of like, you know, shaped the way I see things and have been important in my life. Yeah. So that's it, I guess. And I'm Leila and I'm a British Syrian activist and recently joined the Fire These Times as a member of the team. Yay. So very good to be here. <laughs> Uh, Leila is the co-author of Burning Country as well, a book that everyone should read. And yeah, Leila is now one of the co-hosts of the Friday Slime. So we were even chatting earlier, like at one point, at what point does she stop introducing herself? And um, I think it's going to come organically. Sahar, okay, so this piece was published, well, like now, <laughs> if you did, if you a few weeks ago, 10 days ago, I don't I, I don't have a timeline in my head anymore. Time, time is irrelevant. Uh, for the Finambulist. Yeah, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was published last year, actually, but the um, the issue came out like last year but this was made like in public access recently yeah yeah sorry no i i had 2023 and i forgot not in 2023 <laughs> i i just came across it uh, maybe about a month ago and loved it so let's just untangle the title maybe as as our starting point like imperialism is multiple so should be our solidarities and then the kind of the subtitle is on the need for post post-colonialism talk to us a bit about that if you don't mind yeah, so this stems from various conversations I've had with uh, Leopold de Lambert, who's the editor-in-chief of The Finambulist, and just given a special shout-out for him because he gave me the opportunity to write this piece. And this comes like from a like common frustration with had both within France, but that also reverberates with discourses, obviously, um, that are widespread outside of France, on the inability of uh, a large portion of the left and the so-called anti-imperialist left to see how complex today's web of imperialist structure is and their inability to react adequately to that complexity, which sort of like always leads me to end up talking about my frustration with also the confusion that exists for us, like former colonial subjects, between the, the, the post-colonial era, the post-colonial moment, and what aspiration should be, which is like to transcend that moment. And by the way, I do want to, I mean, hopefully it's clear by my piece, right, when you're reading my piece, but I do want to clarify that when I talk about like transcending that moment, I do not mean it in a way where we sort of like push aside 
the idea of accountability of, of former imperialist powers and colonial powers, right? So transcendent is not forgetting. Transcendent is not systematically forgiven. Transcendent is just recentering on, on ourselves. So there isn't this sort of like idea of like amnesia that, you know, that is still something present, I, I think, like in post-colonial discourse among certain certain individuals, certain bubbles of sort of like, oh, you know, we should get over it, which is also part of the imperialist discourse itself, right? Like, oh, it's been a long time, you guys should get over it. So, so yeah, these are repeated conversations we we have. The center of our frustration very often being Syria. Syria. And I'm not ashamed to say that when it comes to these type of conversations and discourses, it's, it's um, well, very frankly, it is an obsession of mine because it is my biggest frustration in uh, w- within, you know, th- th- that discourse. Th- this comes from several conversations with how we've had on the subject with, uh, with Leopold and which, you know, led him to sort of like reach out and offer me this opportunity to write that piece. I mean, I definitely share your frustrations. I think for me, the Syrian revolution was such a big wake-up call, um, particularly when there was the threat of Western airstrikes on Syria, which led much of the anti-war left to mobilise against Western airstrikes whilst completely ignoring both the Syrian revolution and the whole-scale and systematic slaughter of Syrians by the Assad regime and its allies. That outrage led me to write the piece, The Anti-Imperialism of Idiots. And subsequently, you know, I've realized that this wasn't an issue that just became apparent with the Syrian revolution, but there's been a whole history throughout the left of setting up these false binaries in terms of what imperialism looks like and and who the actors are. So I'm interested to hear from you, like, what was your wake-up moment? What made you first start engaging with these issues? Well, I, I think like I, I sort of like belong to this generation. It's not to say I wasn't politicized before that. I definitely was. You don't really have a choice if you're, I think like if you're if you're North Africa growing up like as a North African in France, like you are politicized to a certain extent, you know, against your own will, perhaps. I, I belong to this like generation that first, because I'm a first um, generation um, immigrant, I still have a very close link to the, the yeah to to the southern side of the Mediterranean and and very close linked to my Moroccan culture and and yeah and, and and family and friends and when the Arab Spring started I think for me that was the beginning of something else entirely so I was extremely politicized before that but it sort of like made me discover like an entire other world that it's not that I ignored it, but I, I think I had a lot of blind spots that I wasn't seen as someone who was brought up in the West, and it was like a sort of like reckoning. So that was the first thing, and I think like again, it, it was like very obsessive. I was, I was really living with every revolution that 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 started. I think what really crystallized sort of like my obsession with the Syrian revolution, so particularly the Syrian revolution, is precisely this, like the reactionarism around it. It's not, it's, I mean, we've had counter-revolutionary voices for every revolution, but the type of counter-revolutionary discourse that, like, that started after the Syrian revolution, it was, it was so morally depraved 
like to an, an extent that I've, I mean, again, I have zero link with, 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 with Syria. I've never been there. But the, the violence of the counter-revolutionary discourse, the absolute lack of, 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 of sympathy that people displayed to the country of what they were able to, 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 to formulate and express for other revolutions or just other, other similar situations where, you know, there were war crimes, massacres, etc. It was just so... And this is really naive, but there's no other way to say it. It was just so unfair. It just did not make sense for me. And of course, as time went by, those reactionary discourse became more and more violent, more and more, yeah, just completely drowned in like this denial of the reality and like this conspiracy theory. It was just, it was crystallizing everything that the worst of like every counter-revolutionary discourse we can find in the region. And I, I always say this, and I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's important to repeat it right now, especially with what is happening in, in, in Palestine. And this is not to make like a, a sort of like competition between the two, because this whole piece is about saying we can hold multiple solidarities at the same time. But for me, the Palestinian cause is the moral compass for the rest of the world. Whether we want it or not, it is largely a consensual cause in the MENA region. The people overwhelmingly support Palestinians and their right to self-determination and overwhelmingly are against the occupation, the brutal massacres, attacks uh, by Israel. So... For me, Palestine is not the moral compass for, for Arabs or people from the MENA region. It's the moral compass for the rest of the world, which, again, you know, it's also important to just say it, it, the only reason why it's a moral compass for the rest of the world is because the world order is dominated by Western countries who do not support the Palestinian cause. But when it comes to people, if, if it's just numbers, of course, the world is, is largely supportive of the, of the Palestinian cause. But because it's a Western-dominated world order, it is their moral compass. But for me, the moral compass in MENA is Syria because it is a non-consensual cause. It is a cause where you can have a very large sample of people from all backgrounds from the MENA region, of various education, like various you know, levels of educations and various life experiences, the social classes, etc. And you will not have like a consensus about it, despite the fact that well, everything should lead us to have the consensus about this. So, yeah, I think for me, it's just like how utterly unfair, you know, the the, the situation has been like for, for Syrians when it comes to just like support from the community. Yeah, thank, thank you both for this. A couple of things came to mind. One, I, I come from like my own positionality is what it is. I'm going to always repeat myself on this podcast, but I've got of Lebanese origins and also Palestinian origins, but I grew up in Lebanon. And Lebanon is the only country that was co-occupied at the same time by both the Assad regime and Israel. And that's a, an experience, if you want, if at least people want to interpret it that way, because obviously people can also have their own narratives of various things, that really brings home this notion that it's not like they are the same because no one state is the same as the other state. But they can operate in very similar ways. 
And so if you kind of extrapolate from that understanding, and then you see after 2011, especially the crackdown, the counter-revolution as we're describing it by the Assad regime, and, and then, well, at the time, and then more and more so its allies against Syrians and against uh, Palestinian Syrians, for that matter, as Yermouk um, is a notorious example of that, the Yermouk refugee camp. For me, that became the new, uh, we have this kind of line, if you want, on, on a a group chat Leila and I are part of and a bunch of other people. Whenever we hear someone, especially in the West, uh, saying they're pro-Palestine, I, I pause. I, I'm, I'm happier than if they're not, for sure. Uh, and obviously, there are like uh, variations of uh, people who are then are like pro-Israel or whatever it might be. But I also, I, I, I pause because I also want to know, like, do they have an opinion or have they thought about other uh, questions, other matters? These days, it's like, Ukraine and Syria are like the easy two ones if you want to to kind of ask or at least wonder. And unfortunately, like none of this is this isn't entirely it's not like I I apply this rule if you want consistently all the time. It's just something I have in the back of my mind at times. Because I have been and Leila as well, and this is especially in the UK our experience, like often seeing people, sometimes white, sometimes not, with like let's say a cafe around at like a with like a pro-Palestine something context, a, a protest or whatever it might be, but who that person is also notoriously, let's say, pro-Assad or, or whitewashing the Assad regime. Like this has been enough of an occurrence that it led us to a bunch of us like to kind of pause at least whenever we see we see that, let's say. But there's like also two things happening at the same time that oh, they are related uh, that I think is interesting to to note at least, even if we don't maybe get into it too too much and in, in, into the weeds, which is that there is this kind of Western, quote unquote, anti-imperialism uh, that may or may not be authoritarian. Uh, what we describe as tankism, which is like a, a kind of one one extreme version of that, let's say, and that's like what we uh, what a lot of your pieces about. Uh, we know uh, a lot of the Western left. And this tendency is normalized. And I, I do want us to talk about how it's normalized. Had grown up in the shadow of the Soviet Union, the second empire, the second whatever, and then it collapsed. And then we're with this one empire, which is dominating most things and blah, blah, blah. And so at some point, I think down the line, there was this tendency of, of, of almost supporting or at the very least being um, you know, complacent, whitewashing, downplaying, whatever, forces that oppose this, this, this power, this imperial power, the U.S. And in and of itself, I obviously understand the need to oppose the U.S. as an imperial power. But if it's then uh, as, as, a, as a position, it's just applied in this, you know, um, uniform way across the world, ignoring the very specific positionalities and experiences of, you know, say, Ukrainians, Taiwanese, people from Xinjiang, you know, Uyghurs, and so on and so forth, then it's where we get a lot of the very, very um, toxic and authoritarian tendencies that I think we have witnessed in the, at different times, online and offline. And so that's like the Western version of it. But there is a, a specific Swana slash Mina version of this, which has to do, I think, with the difficulty of seeing ourselves seeing ourselves without always prioritizing what do the Americans think about this? Or what do the Israelis think about this? Or what do the Europeans think about this? And it's understandable due to the long history of the Americans dominating so much. And of course, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 being the big one. And even before that, the legacy of the British and, and the French as, as colonizers of our lands and peoples and cultures and so on. So the, the tendency is, is an understandable one. But if it's like um, applied again in this 
uniform way without any nuance and whatnot, I think we get the sort of the the perfect storm in in many ways, as we saw after the the revolution, especially in Syria. It came very close, uh, very shortly after 2003, the invasion of Iraq, of course, came uh, at a time when there was a resurgence in understandings and and a pop, more pop, more and more popularized conception of what the Palestinian cause is about. And within that story, you have some people who uh, start associating other states like Iran, like the Assad regime and militias like Hezbollah as being on the side of the Palestinians because they call themselves anti-Israel. And this ends up becoming like almost Syria becomes like Yassin Hash Salah calls, calls, the book is called The Impossible Revolution. And I think a, a kind of a uh, alternative title to that, it's a fine title, would have been The Inconvenient Revolution. Like it came at a time that like so many people did not want to think about that, did not want to have that complexity in their minds because so many people were just in reaction mode, like reacting to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, reacting to even the 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 2011 uprisings themselves, which you know changed so much so quickly. And I think many people got stuck in that tendency. I don't know what term to use really in in, in this case. And Syria, because in Syria you 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 could think about. Or what are the Israelis doing? Or what are what are the Americans doing? But if you're not first thinking about like what is the Assad regime doing and what is Iran doing, what is Russia doing, Hezbollah and so on, Turkey for that matter, what are they doing? Uh, before to start asking yourself what is what are the Americans doing and let them know what what are the Israelis doing, you're kind of missing the plot uh, because that's not they have never been the prim- the primary at least not for a long time in any case, the primary imperialist powers in that sense, because the Assad regime at some point realigned itself. Initially with the Americans, people tend to forget that, but at some point realigned itself away from that. Yeah, just to jump on that. See, it's it's the entire goal of that piece is to move precisely from that question not even what are the Israel like what what are what is what is what are the US doing to us? What is Israel, Turkey, slash everyone doing to us? It's talking about them in a passive way when we are at, at the center of that. What is being done to us? Yes, it's important to identify by who, but what is being done to us? Because we are the main subject. And what are we going to do with what is done to us, right? And, you know, I think, the, you know, just to connect that with something you said when you were talking about the complexity of the situation. One thing that I, I think was really at the disservice of the Syrian revolution is is simply the time. And I'm not saying, oh, Syrians should have, wait, obviously you don't, you know, commend when you, you do have or don't have a revolution. But again, it's something that's out of out of their control. But we were seeing the emergence of that really widespread conspiracy thinking worldwide. And I think a lot of the counter-revolutionary discourse targeted in Syria is in its essence, you know, you know, rooted in, in conspiracy. And at the same time, there is that issue, and there's also the other issue, which is that again, I, I know. You know, we always have this tendency to say, oh, you know, you know, the self-centered thinking that all our times are significantly different than the others. And but I generally do believe there is something about the era we're living in right now that is in a whole other level of complexity 
from the eras that preceded us. And that a lot of that complexity is something we all have a hard time grasping. And it's just so much easier for people on an individual level to look for simplistic frameworks to explain the world around them because it's in the nature of the human being to want things to make sense. We just have a hard time accepting the fact that some things around us don't make sense or that we don't have the ability to make them make sense, that they are, you know, bigger than us, you know, even positive things. A revolution is bigger than the revolutionaries who do it. Like the, some things go out of our control, but we don't live in an era and time where people feel safe enough, whether socially or economically or politically, to accept that complexity without being in a constant state of like anxiety. So that's coupled with that sort of like conspiracy mindset. And of course, the persistence of racist discourses, because this is really what it's about when we accept that there are tens of thousands of Syrians that are just going to be gassed by the regime and that we try to sort of like overlook that in the name of, you know, that alliance for this geopolitical situation or this or that. It's inherently racist. And of course, we also live in a world where colonialism is also um, lingering on. Then these are just several things that are happening at once that make it harder for people, again, to sort of like dissect the situation, go through it, think about it, the center from their the priorities that they think should be their priorities and recentering on what should be their priorities, especially for former colonial subjects and their descendants. Yeah, so 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 sorry sorry for cutting you off on that, but but I think like these these points are like also important to bring in because in the you know in the piece it's it's centered around a lot of examples and obviously I'm a MENA nerd and I'm from the region. That's my object of study and work. So that's what I tend to focus on more. But I think there are some concurrent ways that are happening at the t- at the same time. And it's also what created us to be like sort of like, you know, um, trapped in CU really. I think you hit on a really important point about complexity and the fact that we're living in a period of so many multi-leveled crises that people are looking for a very simplistic framework through which to understand the world. And you have that with campus thinking. It's a very black and white, very reductionist um, framework, a very binary way of thinking where, you know, on one side you have the US, which is the ultimate evil, and then on the other side you have the resistance to that. And I think one of the things that's happened is looking at the Arab region is that that framework was able to explain a lot in relation to Palestine and Iraq until we get to the moment of the Arab Spring. And that really just, you know, totally redefined, redefined the way that people saw themselves and and what was happening. And you bring out and you identify in your piece the way in which the Arab Spring was ultimately about people reclaiming their agency and rising up both against uh, domestic authoritarianism and foreign imperialism. And you give examples from from Iraq and uh, from Iran, where there were activists who were able to oppose US warmongering against Iran, but were also simultaneously able to speak out against the human rights abuses of the Iranian regime. So 
I, I mean, why is it that, you know, so much has changed in the region over the past decade, but people have remained stuck in these concepts? They want a ready-made um, cut-and-paste version of the world. They're not able to respond. Well, this is a this is a thesis subject. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure I have a direct response for this. I can see s- several trends that might, you know, explain that. Which is, I think, perhaps, and this is like an open sort of like question. We've underestimated the capacity of some authoritarian regimes to renew their not their power structures, but their, yeah, just the, their power in the most basic sense of that and to really consolidate that. I think a, a, a lot of these power structures seem to us so decadent, decadent really, that it just it just didn't make sense that would be they would be able to withstand that. And there's that and the fact that whatever they weren't able to consolidate um, a lot of the Western powers stood up for them. And I think the combination of these two things, as well as two other things that are more on our side and more directly related to us, which is first, the complete decadence of the international left. I think that has completely lost its moral compass, its ability to organize and act, and to do so within its time. Again, like, Times have changed. Um, the the reality we live in has also changed. The evil that we were confronted to is also more sophisticated, and I think a lot of um, leftist leftist groups, communities, uh, organizations, etc., entities in general are stuck in a sort of like paradigm from like the twentieth century, from the fifties, eighties, whatever. But it's a paradigm, a matrix that just doesn't work in the twenty first century and not in those circumstances. So they've been unable to, to renew themselves. And I would say, for us specifically in the, in, in the MENA region, I think the, the way I see it is that, first of all, for, for me, yes, the, the, the Arab Spring triggered a lot of things in a sort of like political reckoning, but I, I see it as like a, like a, a centennial like thing. For me, it's an ongoing process since the 19th century. Um, and we're, we're like merely just passing by a section of it. Um, and I think something that has always happened within our region is that there was this sort of like, and I have no idea how to say that in English, so you'll have to translate Joey, but like vast communicant. Yeah, so vast communicant is like when you or from one base to the other, but like they always end up like filling up each other, right? We would have like intellectuals or revolutionaries or, you know, even like people who weren't like from extremely educated like classes, but that, that were very active and politically significant that would end up being able to move like from one region in the Middle East to the other, one country to the other, or like out of the Middle East into Europe and come back. And, you know, there, there was this like with, Syrian intellectual classes in the 30s, going to Paris, coming back, etc. So they would be able to extract themselves from an hostile environment to make their idea, um, their ideas and ideals survive elsewhere, spread them, 
and then it would end, end up coming back somehow through another generation or through themselves, etc. So th- this is why also I think for me, the, the dynamic within our diasporas are something really important to keep an eye on when we're thinking about all of this. And I, I don't know how to explain that. Um, I don't know if it came, if it's like an egg or chicken thing, if it came before or after. I feel like there's something about the link, that dynamic, the link between these local communities and the diaspora helping them and them being able to renew themselves. I feel that something is is breaking down, has broken. I don't know if it's during, it happened during the counter-revolutionary like wave before, after I have no way of pinpointing you know, what is exactly happening to that dynamic. But I feel like that link is is more fragile than it was before. I feel like we have less spaces where we can survive or where we can make ideals survive, where we can um, sort of like build up on them, um, make our discourse more sophisticated, push our, our ideas further. And that space is so reduced and to a certain extent sometimes completely non-existent in certain places that we don't have that like you know you know this sort of like dynamic of renewal and and ability to sort of like save ourselves or at least you know be born again etc i think there's something breaking down in that dynamic um which is very dangerous because just in terms of progress, if you're thinking about this as sort of like a never-ending, like Sisyphus trail, if we have to start from anew every time, then we can't push as much as if we're building up on whatever people, you know, manage to 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 you know save whatever crumbs they manage to save from their hostile environment, and then building up on that. And we are, I feel, entering a phase where that you know essential part of that dynamic is in danger, I think, in our region. That, that's actually very interesting. I, I, I think it's, it's, when I think about the Palestinian struggle specifically, there's something about the fact that it has a long memory that has allowed it to be sustained, obviously, through so many different things have come and gone, you know, since then. But the Palestinian cause, it's still the Palestinian cause. It's, it, even it, it has, like, shifted in terms of, not, I don't know if the word is priorities, but, like, there were other priorities happening around it around Palestinians, around uh, today's Israel-Palestine, around like, you know, U.S. foreign policy or, you know, what uh, the priorities of Arab nationalism and then what happens after that, et cetera, et cetera. But because it's based on a very fundamental principle of self-determination, of justice and so on, it, it was able to be maintained, but also crucially because the diasporas, which were created uh, through violence, through the ethnic cleansing of 48 and Nakba and so on, and in some cases uh, joining existing diasporas that had left, or it, maybe they thought they were temporarily leaving, as you mentioned, it was pretty common at one point for have to, for that to be at least within a certain class in our region, uh, people traveling to, to, let's say, the West and then coming back and so on. It was pretty common for Syrians and, and Lebanese, and even at the time when that distinction wasn't that that rigid anyway, to go to the US or whatnot and and have different thoughts about how they interacted with their own identities. And this isn't so much, uh, the, the way the story is often told is that like they came from a certain place and that had no ideas, nothing of value, and they went there and they saw the richness. The way the story is usually told is that they came from a certain place, like let's say Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, whatever, that didn't have much going for itself, you know, and then they went to the West 
and they saw these amazing ideas of democracy and freedom and whatever, and they brought them back to the Arab world, let's say. And in some people's experience, this was the case if they came from a very specific background. In other people's experiences, it was more that like they, they were looking for something that connected them outside of their own world. And due to like travel patterns and migration patterns and whatnot, usually there was already a pre-existing diaspora in the West, uh, for the most part, in the Americas especially, and in Latin America even more so at one point than in North America, which eventually became the dominant one, and of course in Europe. And that's where they interacted with other people from other backgrounds and whatnot. And that's what allowed them to also think about, well, if if like the Italians and Moroccans and I don't know, uh, Russians I am meeting here are having these discussions and whatnot, what could this look like if it was applied to Damascus, let's say, whatever it might be. And this was actually a big part of like how uh, feminist thought was not really introduced because again this assumed that there was nothing of that sort of thinking within the Arab world before that and that's just not the case it's more that it required a dynamic interaction with other thinkings other or isms other whatnot for it to kind of coalesce into something that made most sense to let's say people living in Damascus or in Beirut or Cairo or what, what have you uh, that's kind of the region I focus on usually and I do wonder what that's like today. Uh, that there's something that, when you think of the the, the links between diasporas and and home, uh, which is a always a, a contested binary anyway. But I remember I had this conversation with with uh, Amro Ali on on Berlin being this. Uh, uh, well, recently I don't know as much, obviously, with everything that's happening and the German censorship of everything Palestine related. But um, having had a bit of this hub, a bit of a lot of Arab diasporas going there, meeting there for the first time in many cases, uh, London having that a bit, Paris also having that a bit and so on. But Berlin had, I think, a, a mix of like so many Syrians went there so quickly in, in a short time period, I mean, uh, and meeting pre-existing diasporas and so on. And something brewing there, essentially, of a, of a sort of a, I really struggle to use the word enlightenment because I don't like it, but something along those lines. And in London, my personal experience, like I, I, I moved there, I was 24, and clearly there are many more Syrians in Lebanon than there are in London. But the Syrians in Lebanon are, for the most part, uh, in pretty terrible conditions, uh, isolated from a lot of Lebanese communities and whatnot, and just discriminated against. Whereas when I moved to London, I was just an Arab migrant. You know, there wasn't that much going for me, if you want, in that sense, other than that. And so I was able to meet Syrians and Palestinians and, you know, other Arabs and whatever, and have that thing in common, which was that we come vaguely from the same place. And that was basically the only thing we had in common. I mean, among others. And that actually allowed, I think, more interactions personally with Syrians and Palestinians than I did growing up in Lebanon, uh, which, again, logically may not make sense, but that's just what, what was the case. And there, so there is something about the, the role of the diasporas and something like this podcast is basically inherently diasporic. It's allowing me right now to have, other than, you know, have conversations with you. It doesn't mean we can't have it if I was based in Beirut or whatever. It's just that there are certain facilities right now due to, unfortunately, the privileges that were accumulated in a very specific space in the world, often at the expense of other places. So in this case, Global North, Global South, to kind of simplify it a bit, that is allowing me this sort of like uh, flexibility time, essentially, the, the, the luxury of having time, because I'm not being persecuted in this very moment by the Assad regime or, or whatever, right? So a lot, a lot on that, to be honest. Another thing, and maybe this can, 
uh, open up more of a, of a discussion. There is this concept of seeing like a state. You know, it's James, 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 I think Scott's book is called like that. It's a concept that has been applied or interpreted in different ways in, in, in uh, different contexts. But uh, a parallel or a corollary framework to understand this is how the war on terror has been normalized, has become basically a, a hegemonic thing to the point that most people apply its logic without thinking that where it comes from. Like, oh, this is specifically a war on terror concept framework, uh, you know, promoted, especially at the time after 9-11 by the Bush administration and, and so on, and uh, Blair in the UK and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now that it's like almost distant memory, uh, although it's like two decades ago, and but the logic of the war on terror has been clearly applied in so many different places that had no direct connection to 9-11, the aftermath, even the invasion of Iraq, and so on and so forth. And so I think of, for example, how the, the Chinese state has clearly viewed the entirety of the Uyghur population through that lens, or uh, Russia in the 90s, especially in early 2000s, towards the Chechen population. And more often than not, this tends to be uh, a Muslim, Muslim-majority population being uh, scapegoated, discriminated against, and so on. Or, of course, the Rohingya in, in Myanmar being another notable example. And I think that the left, super broadly speaking, has had difficulties, uh, if not in many cases, active complicity when it comes to China and, and, and Xinjiang especially, in understanding how other states have easily taken up that logic because it didn't take them too much. It didn't require that much effort to do so because it was a very convenient framework if you wanted to crush your enemies or if you wanted to uh, discriminate it against a you know, troublesome minority, quote unquote, or you know, whatever it might be. It was a pretty easy framework. It's almost like the Americans created the framework or at least popularized it, and then others were happily you know, using it. Although, as I said, you know, when it comes to Russia, this was, it goes back to the 90s, for example. It's not like they invented it, but they clearly popularized it, for lack of a better term, or normalized it, until the point it became hegemonic. And I think a lot of the discourses that we have seen develop when it comes to Syria, especially, is just Islamophobia 101. It's just that. There's nothing... There's nothing extraordinary about it in the sense of how they were talked about any any guy that vaguely looks like me and maybe has a gun is that's it is islamist jihadist al-qaeda uh, daesh whatever you know it's it it did not require much of a uh leap i was accused of being a member of al-qaeda and you know um come from an even different background than the the cultural religious one in which they they formed that extreme component of it's it didn't matter it didn't matter because it was a war on terror in the same way that it didn't matter that the Sikhs in the U.S. and Canada who were targeted were not Muslims, but it didn't matter because they looked a certain way. So that logic was internalized and I think has been normalized in, in large swaths of the left in the West. And I would argue, I think, parts of the Arab left as well, although it's a much weaker one. So do with that as you will, because I've spoken for too long and then I'm you know, happy to take it in different directions. I totally agree with you and what you're saying about how parts of the left you know, really focused on this state-based analysis, completely erasing people and also wholeheartedly adopt this war on terror narrative. Um, but my, my question then would be like, why do we not see the same on from the left? We certainly see the same from states in relation to Palestine. Um, you know, states, uh, um, you know, are trying to push this narrative that um, 
you know, Palestinians don't exist as people, or all they are is um, is this terrorist resistance. But the left is able to apply nuance uh, to the Palestinian cause. It's able to understand that, okay, whilst uh, part of the armed resistance are Islamists, that does not represent uh, necessarily people on the ground, or, you know, there's diversity, there's, you know, so many different factors. So why do you think that we have this Palestine exceptionalism? So, of course, there's, however we think, whatever answer we have is always going to be a partial one. Uh, part of it has to do with that institution, that that memory, that the fact that it's a longer story than most other stories, and uh, you can like, you can discover the Palestinian cause in 2024 or 2023 because of the ongoing genocide in Gaza, and you will have a plethora of things to immediately jump into. You know, Hassan Kanafani, you you maybe that one clip you've seen of an interview, and then that leads you down some something, and that is just so much that you can. Think about so many documentaries, so many movies, so many books, so many, so many Palestinians even talking about it because of the diaspora due to the Nakba obviously being so so large. So that's that's like one thing that it's like easier to think about in that sense. It's like the the storyline is clearer in, in in to to you know if we can use it put it that way. The other thing is that, and this is not putting October since then in mind because I think that has already changed things quite significantly and. We don't quite know what's gonna happen, what's gonna come after that. Uh, obviously, first and foremost, to like Palestinians themselves in Gaza, or even in the West Bank, to, for that matter. Uh, but in terms of like the discourse and whatnot, it's it's very much too fresh to kind of know where that's gonna, where that where we might be in that sense by then, whatever the then is. But there's also the fact that if you are a Western leftist and you're thinking about the Palestinian cause. In some sense, you're also thinking about the same state that you are uh, already unhappy with. You're already opposing. So it might be the U.S., the, the American government, who you already know. If you if you've already entered that left-wing thinking analysis and so on, you know of the role of the U.S. in Latin America. You know, you know, obviously Vietnam being a big one at one point, at least for the previous generations, and so on and so forth. And so it's not that difficult to see what the Israelis are doing in Palestine, in Israel-Palestine. And of course, the fact that the U.S. it's its primary backers, backer, the story is in that sense as horrible as it is. It's simpler. It's a very simple good guys bad guys situation, and that's why anyone like as you mentioned, like uh, Sahar, the the what do you call it? It's almost like a litmus test of like if someone is in the West and doesn't, if they don't know, that's one thing. But if they oppose the Palestinian cause or they 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 rely on the Islamophobic and they're all terrorist tropes, tropes and whatnot. That's a very clear position position to 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 oppose, basically. So that's like one thing on Palestine. On Syria, it's because those two at the same time, it's not as old in in many people's minds. It's more recent for many people. It's just started ten years ago, ten plus years ago, which isn't the case. But that that's how it's interpreted often, and the fact that they have to decenter themselves to think about Syria because Syria is not about them. There's it's very difficult if you're an average. I don't know, left winger in Paris, uh, you know, a white person, let's say, with no connections to direct, directly to Syria or New York or whatever, to see what the Assad regime is doing and try and prioritize what the French government has said or what the American government has said. You can, but it's a bit of a stretch. And so you have to prioritize and you have to center the experiences of the Syrian uprising and participants in that themselves. And if you do that, then you have to understand that 
in that context, the center, so to speak, if you want to use the center periphery uh, binary, so to speak, is not the U.S. It's it's if it's in the if you're in the north, the U.S. might have a more direct role because of Turkey. But other than that, it's it's Iran, it's Russia, and it's obviously the Assad regime, it's Hezbollah, and so on. And you have to prioritize that, and that can complicate your life if you then also want to include Palestine in your analysis because well, Hezbollah is part of the so-called resistance against Israel, and so you have to hold both in your head and. I have found, unfortunately, sometimes the hard way that this can be very difficult for a lot of people. And as as we said, like they can they then rely on existing frameworks that explain the world in a much easier way that we would call conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking. And unfortunately, have a lot in their circles, especially through like the algorithms on social media, to reinforce that. You don't have to interact with people like me or you or us here, right? You can just interact with people who already kind of you know, Roger Waters and et cetera, et cetera. You can just stay stay in that in that world, basically. So that would be my partial answer to that. Yeah, I, I agree with most of what you said, Joey. I think there are two important axes in this. The Palestinian cause gathers so much support around the world from the point of view of former colonial subjects or people who are still subjected to, yeah, colonial or policies or imperialism, because it crystallizes their everything they've experienced, the all form the, the form all the forms of violence that they've experienced from that colonial and imperialist structure, right? This is what the Palestinian cause crystallizes. What the Syrian cause crystallizes is something much more contemporary, because the Palestinian cause is so much more older, right? Like there, there's also this whole transmission, and I totally agree with that, is that they, they, they've had decades to build up that support. And the timing was obviously different, but I'm getting to that on the second point. But what the Syrian cause crystallizes are more of these contemporary issues. And, you know, again, things we've talked about, like this conspiracy thinking, thinking um, the complexity of, our, of today's imperialist structures but also, to go back to this dichotomy that I do in the text between the post-colonial mo- moment and the post-post-colonial moment, this is a perfect example of it, because the Palestinian cause is a post-colonial moment reaction, right? Uh, because they are building up um, that support to achieve self-determination. Syria is the post-post-colonial moment. Okay, we, we have our country. What are we going to do with what was done to us? Right. And the post post-colonial moment is something on a global scale we haven't fully reached yet. So this is something that people haven't fully processed, unlike post-colonial, the post-colonial moment and reaction to the violence of colonialism. So it's much more easier for people around the globe to conceive the immediate reaction to colonialism because it's like so blatant in, in, in Palestine. I mean, the the entire framework there is something from the past century. So it's literally things people see in their textbooks. But as as we have evolved and become more sophisticated in our politics and global politics, so has the evil that come with it. And so have certain imperialist structure and more contemporary ones, right? And people have a harder time grasping that. So they have a harder time relating to it. And this explains the sort of like distance they have with the Syrian cause, despite all these similarities with the Palestinian cause. 
And just to jump back really quickly on the second, I mean, really the first axis, but I'm talking to, about it like uh, uh, as the second one, is the timing. I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about like, again, we're, we're in this sort of like egg and chicken situation with rising Islamophobia in the West, which you rightfully mentioned, Joey, because I think this is a really important thing. Again, I'm not saying Islamophobia didn't exist <laughs> in 48 or that there wasn't racism. I think what the war on terror has caused within the framework of imperialism is a direct targeting. Because there's a whole, like, there's a whole, like, section of imperialism where it's also literally imperial powers not caring about the others. And there's another dynamic, which is imperial powers directly targeting the other for who they are, for their nature, for how they are perceived, etc. And of course, it's not like something completely rigid and they've been mixed throughout the, you know, throughout the time. But this is happening in a moment of extreme racism and discrimination against anyone that is perceived as Arab, Muslim, etc. It's a melting pot of like, you know, people not differentiating between like various communities which wasn't necessarily the case for the Palestinian cause. Against this, it's not to say that there weren't episodes of Islamophobia or that the premises of the discourse of war and terror didn't exist the previous decades, but we're really at a peak right now with the Syrian, with the Syrian revolution when it's happening. And again, this is another example of this vast communicant, these two vases filling each other, but in a vicious way, which is, you know, how the Syrian revolution has led Europe to a really, really dark path indirectly. That is, the responsibility is on Europe, obviously, but it's in the way they responded to it. And I always say this like to people who, yeah, again, would tell me like, why do you care so much? It's not your country, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, even, you know, if it's not my country, and even if I had to think about it in a just very cynical way and not like on a, you know, human level, how I feel about these people, it is completely naive from Europeans and Westerners in general to think that whatever happens in Syria is not going to have consequences on them, whether it's direct or indirect. Because everything we've seen the last decade in Europe right now is to a large extent, for me, linked to the discourse around Arab revolutions, but the Syrian revolution in particular. All this anti-migrant discourse, etc. Like there, the Syria crystallized a lot of these discourses, and because you, the European left, is disorganized, has lost its moral compass, has lost its intellectual ground and foundations, it has been unable to sort of like respond to those waves, to those right-wing waves and reactionary discourses in Europe, and this has profoundly changed changed the shape of the European continent as we know it today in just a decade. So a, a lot of this has to do with this sort of like, for me, dynamics and timing dynamics and these um, new phenomenons that, you know, didn't existed to this, uh, at the same level previously, or at least were not as sophisticated. And what I mean, when I, what I mean by sophisticated is like in the evil <laughs> and most negative way possible. And I think those issues of timing as well as what it crystallizes and how people have thought about these discourses and 
how they are thought about their place in the world and the discourse that they hold themselves in their own countries explains this discrepancy. Besides the, of course, like we can't really deny this, is that there's a really deeply entrenched moral depravity of, of, of a huge part of the global left now. And I think the combination of all of these things has been like completely disastrous for, for, for Syrians, both in terms of like direct policies, but also just in terms of like international support. And, and it has really isolated, isolated the, the Syrian revolution on, on, on the international scene. And just to add to the, the timing, of course, the financial crash was in 2008. And a lot of uh, Europeans, is, I mean, we're talking about Europe specifically due to proximity to Syria here. The, the pre precarization, I don't know what the term is, of very, virtually all, like everything in our lives, whether it's our careers, our, how much we pay rent, uh, inflation, that sort of thing, has on average gotten worse for most people. And the Syrian revolution and then the subsequent crackdown and, and brutal counter-revolution led to a huge exodus of Syrians from Syria, which then led, of course, to refugee camps. And because of the, again, thinking like a state, is, as you said, it's the responses more than the, the causes that tended to do way more harm than, than good. And they were at the time when uh, the, the, how do you say this, like the, the shadow of Islamic terrorism was growing again. You had ISIS, obviously, in the attacks in France and, and, and in the UK and so on provided a very easy scapegoat to that. And that part of that scapegoating process is to reaffirm the state-based consensus. And in Syria, the state-based consensus is the Assad regime. There was very much a, a de facto understanding, sometimes made more explicitly than not, then like no one really likes him, but like we know him. And if we kind of uh, accept his rule or whatnot, at least that might mean fewer refugees come to Europe. Now, even, even if you were that cynical, you are objectively wrong in believing that. But that impulse is there. It's like, keep them over there. It just, it's, it's, a, it's a literally a visual thing almost. And this is like my own thing, Leila and I we've been, and others we've been talking, so like there's a bit of rumblings of that happening when it comes to Egypt even, and if not Egypt, Libya, and of course, North Africa in general. Of like, we'll just, you know, we'll pay the Coast Guards. Libya is a notorious example of that. As long as you just keep them away. And whoever the them is, the them is just like a, this amorphous uh, hordes of black people, brown people, Muslims, and so on. Just minimize them, reduce them, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And of course, this is inherently white supremacist, racist, and to some extent, it's bordering on fascist more and more language. We just saw a few days ago, Macron himself talking about the demographic rearmament, whatever the expression he used. That's, that's just fascism. That there's no other, there's just what it is. And has become so normalized, so uh, widespread, that it's almost taken for granted that now this, if you want to apply any kind of centrist position, you have to appeal more and more to the far right. And so whenever they think about, if you think of this concept of population crisis and an aging population and whatnot, we know like there are tried and tested ways of fixing quote-unquote that solution, which is to allow more people in. It's really that straightforward if you want to apply that same logic. But of course, then it's a question of like, who are we letting in? And does that mean there will be too many non-white people too quickly? And this is where the anxieties around 
who I am as a French person, or as an American person, as a British person, etc., etc., come in, and that's always very ripe for the taking uh, for especially centrist and then to the right politicians. But honestly, we've seen a lot of left-wing politicians, you know, overtly left-wing politicians, Mélenchon notoriously in France, use those discourses that are basically, you know, the same discourses of the war on terror. Mélenchon himself is on record very, very close to the last elections, from what I remember, when Syria was more in the news, let's say, uh, saying like those same people that Russia is is uh, fighting, those are the same people that we are against. Because then he was referring to the the I think it was after the Bataclan uh, massacre, if or something. Uh, my timeline is a bit funky, but it was something along uh, you know something along those lines. And so these there are the same people, the same groups of people. And in that in that framework, anyone again who is vaguely Muslim. Uh, presenting, regardless of their political ideologies on the left, on the right, uh, centrist, whatever, is de facto threatened. And if you contrast this with Bashar al-Assad and his wife, who had this Vogue uh, portrait uh, profile like months before the uprising in 2011, calling her desert, the rose in the desert, or whatever it might be, you know, Western educated, presenting in a certain way, speaking English, you know, that sort of thing. It's a much more appealing um, um, it's an easy um, thing to appeal to. And that's why the far right was always pretty consistent in its support of Bashar al-Assad. As Leila, uh, yourself, and Sean McFessel, and we had an episode about it, on why the far right, um, the Western far right, loves Bashar al-Assad, because it's very straightforward. He has described part of the Syrian population as undesirable. He has basically called this a non-useless Syria or non-useful Syria, whatever the framework was. And this is like translation from the Arabic. And uh, it's a clear model that has, in effect, worked through the backing of Russia and Iran specifically, and clearly something that they would love to apply themselves. And this is very clearly a projected fantasy of what they would love themselves to apply in the U.S. You know, uh, uh, many people who were in that Charleston far-right rally had like Bashar Assad shirts uh, and so on. You know, it's... Um, Anyway, I'm riffing in, in a bit because this, as I said, this can be taken in, in, in so many different directions. No, but th- this is like very important when it comes to the success of, of, of these um, revolutions and these ideals, right? When I was talking about this idea of renewal earlier, about like how in our region we've been always able to create pockets and from that rebuild ourselves and our communities, but like most importantly, our ideals in these projects, right? Um, this is something I'm, you know, personally really worried about. And this is why it's so important for me that we, we teach ourselves to dissect these complex webs today, because, um, I'm just afraid it might be a point of no return for, for our region. Cause you know, you mentioned Berlin earlier. Okay. And this is something actually that comes up a lot with, in discussion with my French friends where we're always like. Okay, we need to get out of France. Where should we go? And there's always this thing about like, oh, Berlin is is this sort of like intellectual safe heaven, um, because we're recreating this this like mina bubble of of intellectuals and and revolutionaries. Um, and we've seen now how things are in Germany, obviously for activists on the ground, and it's horrendous to think about it. Um, and and it just worries me because. What I'm seeing is that we, again, we don't have these pockets anymore. Our voices are being stifled absolutely everywhere, and we don't manage to create safe spaces. Um, 
could we imagine, for example, that 30 years ago, any city, any you know, metropole would have had the amount of brilliant minds um, that ended up taking refuge in, in that city, fleeing, you know, Egypt, Syria, you know, whatever country in the region, all concentrated in one city, and that the the situation would be what it is currently. Like you would have like so many, and I'm not saying that there isn't anything being produced. Of course, there there are things being produced. There are like brilliant people who are working there, doing great work, writing great things, thinking, you know, um, about like really complex issues and and how to solve them. Um, But what I'm thinking is that if they weren't so stifled, we would be on a whole other level right now. And it's precisely that barrier between like mere survival and progressing in our thoughts, like building up on what we have before that we're currently like missing because we're being blocked at the lower level by these dynamics that are happening in, in, in the West. And um, yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a very dangerous time. And this is why it's, it's, it's really important to, to rethink how we approach these things. I'd be curious to hear, Leila, your thoughts on this. You, because in, in the thing we we're preparing, you mentioned how, like in Sahar's piece, she talks about people reclaiming the right to action, not just reaction, the right to be the first and only priority and so on. I'm wondering if we are, and maybe this is an extrapolation or maybe it's too far. I don't know. You tell me. But I'm wondering if this doesn't mean that we're already in a situation right now. We just haven't fully, I don't know, in, internalized this, internalized it because sometimes things take like a, the, the timeline of an entire generation, if not generations, and we're just a, a fraction of that in our, in our own timelines. Beyond thinking beyond the nation state. By which I mean, does it doesn't mean like individuals have to immediately know what is going to happen when the nation state collapses as a model, but more like framing things and 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 sort of an understanding this that this period we're in may or may not be at least one potential scenario, one possible scenario, is that the nation state and and its inherent contradictions that were that were always inbuilt of having the in group and the out group and being absolutely. Um, in need of an outside group, that there always has to be an other, regardless of what the in-group is, right? Like the in-group can be flexible in some cases, if it's like, you know, liberal um, democracy, let's say, you, you can become French, you can become British and so on. But for the most part, this is like contrasted with like the people who cannot and can never be, et cetera, et cetera. And in France, we're seeing, I mean, the scary bit, the normalization of that, uh, Islamophobic rhetoric under the the guise of a republican sentiment, which is not really that, is um, that the, the Muslim can only be French if he or she or whatever doesn't do Muslim stuff. You know, that is doesn't perform their Muslimness anymore. This whole the, the integration, quote unquote, and that can be terrifying, and that is terrifying, and it's becoming more and more scary on on, on in that sense. And then different nation states will have ver- versions of that of what is it that you have to give up about yourself in order to be accepted? And even then, accepted is always in quotation. You can be the model immigrant, quote unquote, and there will still be things about you that will always be a question mark, always be doubted, always be 
you can never perfectly fit in, so to speak. Not that I'm saying fitting in is good in and of itself, but you can't. And because you have to think that way for your own security's sake as well. You have to understand like, what is it? Is it, is it going to be too dangerous for me to uh, wear the kippah if you're Jewish in certain places or if they wear the hijab, obviously, uh, in, in, in many places, especially in France these days and so on and so forth. Like there are certain things about yourself in me, like I'm vis- visually very bearded, long hair, Arab looking and whatnot. Does that mean I need to cut my hair more? You know, stuff like that, that can accumulate. And especially if you uh, scale it up to an entire community can translate into real, real deep-seated fears that are, of course, justified. And what I'm wondering, if you want, and this is going to be a very uh, badly formulated question, so uh, tolerate me on that, please, is if we take those two, like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking more like a very, you know, the, it's not thesis and antithesis necessarily, but like those two stories, and if we want the Palestinian one and the Syrian one, if we want to find some kind of synthesis between those two, that one is the post-colonial story and one is as we're calling it the post post-colonial story if we are given that we're in a different timeline now let's say we're in the post post-colonial world with the exception of palestine um not just I, sorry as i said it's going to be badly formulated but we have these um this new world that's already being created and that may have already you know established itself but we're, we're having difficulties uh, adapting to it or recognizing it for what it is and so on it might take time to do so does that mean that in order to best adapt to it, we need to, in my, I think, in you, you know, tell me your thoughts, we have to kind of have multiple frameworks at the same time, you know, in the sense that in some cases, when it comes to Palestine, okay, we're adopting a, let's say, post-colonial framework. Yeah, I'm simplifying a bit, but let's say that. And when it comes to Syria, we have to adopt a post-post-colonial framework. But it might mean that, I don't know, if for some reason in 10 years or within the decade, Iran decides to treat Syria like Israel treated Palestinians, does that mean then we have to revert to a post-colonial analysis? Or maybe it's something completely else, completely different, right? And so basically adapting our understanding of situations to what the situations are demanding. And that for practical purposes would be extremely difficult because there are too many situations happening all the time. And so accepting the the accepting the discomfort if you want that comes with not knowing immediately how to understand a situation as long as we maintain certain basic principles dignity human rights etc etc that's why i've been kind of thinking on that because i don't know what's going to happen to various contexts and various i don't know what's going to happen to the palestinian cause if israel manages to uh depopulate ethnically cleanse people and people from Gaza. what's going to happen to the palestinian cause i don't know you know but i i still feel like i will still know what it is, what is the Palestinian cause. Maybe in 50 years, I don't know. But right now, this is how I feel. So I I do wonder if this kind of um, feeling, if you want, or this kind of framework of accepting that certain contexts are are complicated in their own ways and deserve our attention in very specific ways, and doing holding those two together, basically, at the same time, which I'm not saying is easy, but it kind of feels like it's the only... um, way to at least avoid most of those tendencies that we, we are kind of complaining about, the authoritarianism, the tankism, all of that stuff, because it decenters us as the only agent in this world, if that makes sense. I mean, I, mean, I think you're sort of like partly answering to your question. Um, because when when I say like people can 
perhaps relate more to the Palestinian cause because it's more post-colonial, whereas the Syrian one is post-post-colonial. What's you know interesting to think about is precisely the fact that that these two, if we consider these to be two different frameworks, which I don't, but I'm coming to this point, um, they exist in the same space in the same time, right? And I think, you know, to go back to this issue of complexity of our world, we're in a really real, like, spatial temporal limbo where both the post-colonial order exists and the post-post-colonial or you know, is trying to emerge. Um, because, again, we can think that, you know, most of the countries that exist today are not colonized, right? Unlike 100 years ago. But there is a very clear colonial order for our world. And so these two frameworks are not antithetical. Um, and the reason why I was saying, like, you partly responded to that, it's, you know, to, to go back to this idea that whatever you pick as your um, ultimate target is sort of, sort of like going to annihilate all the rest. It's, it's always dangerous to think like that in almost all settings and all forms of ways. Expect except when you're like prioritizing again the freedom dignity and rights of a person if that is always your ultimate goal these frameworks are never antithetical and they will always make sense in the sense that like you know you mentioned even iran and, and syria this post-colonial framework can even be used in syria today we we all know it like the way russia and iran operates in syria today you could you know use the post-colonial framework as opposed to the post-post-colonial. So I think it, it, it's, you know, you have to think about I'm really bad at visual, visualizing things, so I should, probably shouldn't say that, but like um, probably like a 3D or like 4D if it exists type of thing where you have multiple layers being on top of each other, but you just sort of like need to move around it to see where it's located, how it engulfs the other ones, how they are separated, etc. But I, I, I think ultimately, as long as you never make any sort of like geopolitical gain or political objective or economic objective, like in the case of capitalism, um, you know, as long as you don't put one of these objectives before that individual rights to freedom, dignity, um, yeah, and 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 yeah, the, the right to express yourself, your political views, etc. Then these frameworks are always, to a certain extent, compatible, or at least they are not always systematically incompatible. I would agree with that, and um, yeah, like you say, it, it's never black and white because in Syria you can have the post-post-colonial and the post-colonial, and we now have. Iran occupying um, large parts of the country and also bringing in a settler population that's changing uh, demographics through bringing in Shia from the region. But I think for me, you know, that once you start to center people, then everything else kind of falls into place. I, I would say, you know, we we use and we learn from the analysis which has come before us. But we don't want to always fall into that, these preconceived ideological frameworks to try and explain a situation. We, in every situation, really need to start from what's happening on the ground. 
what people themselves there are saying, what their specific context, their historical experience, their politics, their economy, their culture, all of these factors, um, you know, influence uh, how we should how we should respond to something. Right, and just to, to add to that, there are very concrete examples in the region, not in terms of solution, but in terms of, you know, things, you know, sort of like solving themselves, as you say, Leila, once you center the rights of the people. Um, you know, we've been talking about Palestine for this entire session. Um, this thing of like people saying, oh, but it's so complicated because Jewish people have the right to self-determination as well, like, Etc. Well, no, it's not complicated because if everyone is treated equally and has equal rights, it's absolutely not complicated for people to live in, in one place, right? Or to take another more under the radar type of issue, um, Kurds and Assyrians in northern Iraq, right? Um, yeah, with obviously com complicated history, Assyrians were victims of, I mean, for, for people who don't know, Assyrians were victims of a genocide uh, to which, it, you know, um, Kurdish uh, participated to a certain extent, um, but both claim like historicity to the same territory. Um, and again, the same as for Israel and Palestine, we're not going to go into who was there first and the years and all of that and calculating which you know populations lived through that land. But it's 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 a very easy issue to solve if you consider that you are going to give equal rights to everyone. Right? It's not to say that everything is going to solve itself, but the bulk of the issues, at least those who are leading to conflict or leading to massacres, um, then do not have a strong basis when you have equal rights for everyone. So there are concrete examples. There's just nobody with the political will to enact the solutions for that. Um, but uh, yes, centering the rights of the, the equal rights of everyone pretty much, I mean, I know as, as naive as it might sound, like pretty much <laughs> um, eliminates a lot of these issues we're, we're, we're talking about. Yes, and I, I would just add specifically a, a focus on self-determination. And by that, I mean self-determination of peoples, that peoples have the agency to decide um, their own future, not as self-determination is often conceived that it's a right of states. I will... Leave you to the kind of the final words to you know share some reflections on this conversation and things maybe we haven't gotten into as much and you know maybe this could be like a subject for a future conversation. But I'll just quickly say like I don't think it's you described it as like maybe it's naive and I don't think it is. I just think the world that is currently ours, the world we currently exist, is and he is obviously a huge generalization but is, you know, formed out of very specific social constructs that have been normalized, uh, institutionalized, uh, spread out and whatnot through forces that we can identify, like colonialism, capitalism, like imperialism for that matter, and so on and so forth. So, so, much, know that, so much so that we do know that certain um, gender norms that were in there like 200 years ago in X place then became more normalized after the, the the after colonialism let's say you know these things we can actually study them we can actually we and uh, many people do so it the world has been built in a very specific way like after world war ii we had the post world war ii consensus of some kind which we can sort of identify like the united nations there was at one point of course the cold war 
with the two main nodes and then the people who were not aligned called themselves a non-aligned movement lots of problem there as well and so on and so forth like there there is a certain a sort of timeline that's always simplistic in the sense that it simplifies the complexity of our world but i don't think it's um naive to say that a lot of the problems do so, do seem to come from the the inconsistencies in in human rights discourse that some people just have more rights than others it's just how it is and that shouldn't be the case if by definition it's a universal uh standard it's a universal belief and i do worry this is like my own personal thing i i, I wonder if you would disagree i don't think so but there has been a lot of uh, talks as well of like the humanitarian, not humanitarian, sorry, humanist language of like everyone is equal and whatnot, kind of being discarded a bit too quickly, in my opinion, because it is applied very unequally in a very hypocritical way. And often like uh, for one group at the expense of the other. That worries me because I think if we let go completely of the basic notions that everyone is equal and so on in, in rights and et cetera, the only people that really who would take advantage of that are the people that we would currently identify as the far right and other like reactionary and violent and authoritarian forces. I don't think many people from what I can kind of gather think that if we let go of the illusion of that, then somehow we will wake up to a world where we have to all be equal or whatnot. But I just don't think that's the case. I don't think something happens just because it should. I think it really needs to be pushed in a certain direction through various mechanisms that we, we have been talking about. So personally, that's like a concern I have that like in because human rights law is clearly, clearly failing when it comes to Israel-Palestine, it means that we have to completely ignore not the law aspect necessarily because that's a complicated thing, but ignore the idea, the very notion that there has to be um, international something, some kind of international consensus on the, on the basis of, of, or at least the basic value of, of human life, basically. Uh, because I don't think, like, if we use this example, I don't think Palestinians would be the ones benefiting from the collapse of that, to be honest with you. I think it would be actually the, the, the Israeli state. Um, anyway, so that's like my, my kind of my parting conclusions, if you want, or reflections a bit, is that conversations like these are always um, complicated to have, but I don't think they're impossible to have. Like, that's kind of the point, is that ultimately we will still reach some kind of conclusion even if that conclusion is not final and i think we should be okay with conclusions kind of like what i mentioned earlier that the framework doesn't have to be uh perfect all the time everywhere it doesn't have to be perfectly applied in all contexts but the input the the impulse of like dignity human rights and so on the right to life and right to happiness for that matter etc etc um are the stuff that we can actually fall back on they are there they have been fought for people have really fought for those uh, this, for me, I'm I'm much more of a building the shell and in building the new in the building the new in the shell of the old, uh, than pretending it's as easy to just get rid of everything and and just start from scratch because I don't think that has ever been the case. Uh, but that's just those are that's my um, conclusions if you want at least for now. So I don't know if you have like any kind of final thoughts, things that you you wanted us to get into, maybe we haven't, which you know you can at least uh, mention, and we'll just leave it at that for now. Maybe just a couple of things for me, because um, we didn't have time to touch uh, to touch upon the subject during our talk. But um, I think it's important for the Western left um, to recognize the sort of like um, 
lingering imperialism in word structure and stop thinking that like foreign policy is something, and I'm talking, you know, more specifically for individuals who vote or activists in the Western world, to think they can cut themselves from what is happening on that periphery. Meaning that, for example, because you mentioned Mélenchon several times, there are people who would say, oh, I don't agree with his foreign policy on Syria, and yeah, it's trash, but, you know, he's he's really good in the domestic policy. I, I have a really hard time with that stance, because if you're at the center of the imperial power, then you know the decisions you make impact the periphery, then you have a responsibility towards that. So I would, I would yeah, that's one thing I would just... Yeah, like to say that people have to start taking the foreign policy sense of whoever they support domestically um, uh, as seriously as they take their their domestic their domestic policies. I don't really have anything um, else to add. Uh, we've we've discussed so many issues um, today, and I think you know whenever we have these kind of conversations, we're always raising more questions than answers. But, you know, I really believe that by getting together and, and discussing these issues and reaching out and meeting new people, meeting new perspectives, you know, we're really starting to, to build some momentum about um, and awareness uh, of some of the problems that we're identifying with the mainstream left and most importantly, how we can build an alternative so that we are able to respond to what's happening in Syria, to what's happening in Palestine, and not fail the people on the ground, ultimately. Brilliant. Well, all that's left for me to say, really, in this context is thank you both for taking part in this conversation. It went even longer than I think we had anticipated, but as with these things, um, it's just what it's just what it needs, really. There's no, it's very difficult to summarize most of what we were talking about. So thank you for that. Thanks a lot, both of you. This has been another episode of the Friday's Times. If you like this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star rating or review on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. And if you really like this podcast, head on to patreon.com slash times. That's patreon.com slash times. The Friday's Times is a media ecosystem based in the periphery that supports a bunch of media projects, including this one. For $5 a month, and even less if you opt for the yearly subscription, you can help this ecosystem grow and get early access to all episodes of the Friday's Times, Politically Depressed, Obscuristan, and Khida, as well as an invitation to join our monthly hangout, watch parties, upcoming book club, as well as exclusive episodes. Thank you for listening, and take care everyone. <laughs>